And it had to be right. And it was. Bethlehem of Judah. Now, even though Israel as a nation claims sovereignty over the whole of Israel today, yet within the country, there are many pockets that are controlled by the Arabs. And one of those pockets is Bethlehem. You see, Jews are not allowed into Bethlehem. You do not want to go into Bethlehem pronouncing yourself to be a Jew or you won't come out alive. Now, (laughs) there is Jewish pride. When we talked about this with our Jewish guide when I was in Israel, he said, well, I'm not afraid to go into Bethlehem. I have no idea why he took us into Jerusalem to look over into Bethlehem. We did not go into Bethlehem with our Jewish guide. So when we were there, as I say, he took us over uh, into Jerusalem and where we could look over into Bethlehem. And as we were doing that, he said, well, this is where Jesus was born. And I just couldn't contain myself. I burst out and I said, why? And he said, because I said so. (laughs) And I said, this is in front of the whole group, by the way. And I said, no, because the prophet said so. Well, that ended the conversation. But how true. This is where Micah the prophet said the Christ child would be born. And what's interesting and fascinating is the Jewish religious leaders knew this prophecy very well. We read about it in Matthew chapter 2. The wise men show up and they're looking for Jesus. And it goes like this, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And by the way, if you're you're a Herod kind of a leader, when you're troubled, everybody else around you is troubled. And that was the case here. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, these are the key religious leaders in, in Israel, all the chief priests and scribes, you know, the scholars who knew the scriptures well, When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Thus there are many... Fascinating insights related to the incarnation. But this morning, I want to zero in on the word glory. I want to zero in on that word glory. There's a tremendous glory theme associated with Christ coming into the world as a man. And this glory theme is often touched on in our Christmas carols, our Christmas songs. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, glory stream from Heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia, Christ the Savior is born. We sang, right? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The old song says, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. There is a glory Reality found in the person of Jesus Christ that is beyond us. And we want to think about this glory this morning. I want to consider three points with you. Number one, Christ came to reveal the glory of God to us. Number two, Christ came to make it possible for us to share in that glory. And number three, Christ came to ultimately bring many sons to glory. Let's talk about that word glory for just a moment. The word glory, uh, the main Hebrew word is kabod, which means literally weight or heavy, uh, used figuratively of that which carries heavy significance, of great importance. And then in the New Testament, uh, the main Greek word is doxa, uh, meaning bright, excellence, splendor, brilliance, radiance, awesomeness. And I like what Paul Tripp has to say here in relationship to glory. He says, glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Uh, Emphasis mind, description of a thing. 
Glory isn't a part of God. It's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. But even that's not enough of a description. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory is glorious. Here's my definition of glory. Glory is the indescribable, overwhelming splendor and awesomeness of God's person and presence. It includes God's beauty, power, and character. And when thinking about God's glory, commentators often use the word awesome. In fact, I've heard people say, I don't think awesome should be used of anything else other than God. But I would like to coin another word that can only be used in reference to describing God's glory. And you won't find this in a dictionary. That's why I say I'm coining the word. Uh, And that is the word, instead of awesome, I want to use the word godsome. Uh, Godsome is God-awesome. It is awesome that applies singularly to God alone. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says he will not share his glory with any other. God's glory is his glory alone. God's glory is thus indescribable. That is, no description completely does it justice. And it is incomprehensible in that we can never comprehend it fully. The glory of God is truly godsome. We see something of this glory in creation, right? Uh, The Bible tells us here in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. I like what Abraham Lincoln said on this score. He said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how a man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. But it's broader than the heavens. Yeah, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And boy, you know, I I was up early this morning. I was in my study and, and my wife comes in and she says, have you seen the moon? And I said several times. No, I didn't. Have you seen the moon like right now? And I said, no. And she said, look out there. Did anybody see the moon this morning? It was awesome. Oh, excuse me. It was Godsome. (laughs) Declaring the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But it's broader than that, as I say. Uh, We have this statement in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All things which God has created on earth, express His glory. His wisdom, His goodness, His power, His holiness are seen everywhere. The whole of nature really is an outstretched finger pointing to the glory of God. And for this reason, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that people are without excuse. Now, people claim they can't find God. Well, they can't find God for the very same reason the criminal can't find the police. You see, they're not looking for him. There's not even seeking after God. As Romans 1.18 says, people suppress the truth which God has clearly shown to them. It's not that God hasn't made it clear. People suppress it in their depravity, in their rebellion. Tremendous threefold emphasis, and that's a supreme emphasis. Holy, holy, holy. Holy means unique. There is none other like God. And the whole earth testifies to the unique glory of God. Even though God's glory is on display everywhere, there are times when God has chosen to put his glory uniquely on display in a dramatic and overt fashion. Such occurrences in the Old Testament were times when people saw what they called, what the Jews used, they used that word Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. It's really not a Bible word, but it's it's the word the Jews uh, use to reference a a particular special uh, revealing of God's glory. The word Shekinah literally means to dwell. And as I say, the Jews use this word to refer to the radiance of God's imminent presence. God's Shekinah glory was first manifest as the children of Israel left Egypt in the Exodus. And as they journeyed, 
God's presence was visibly manifest in a cloudy pillar by day and a fiery pillar by night. Boy, you, you really don't have to wonder about the Lord's leading when you're in that kind of a context, right? I mean, when, when the pillar was moving, you were following the pillar. God's out in front leading. They experienced that. We find in Exodus chapter 13, the Lord went before them by day in a, in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, we can only imagine what this experience must have been like, uh, you know, uh, by way of day, by way of night, uh, above, the, uh, above the tabernacle, which uh, was the place of God's meeting with the people. And so it was pretty clear, God's glory. Now, when we think about humanity, human beings are fascinating. Wouldn't you agree? I go to the zoo to watch the people. Uh, human beings are fascinating. And humanity is the crowning work of God's creation. As God went along in creation week, we have the repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good, repeatedly. But only after God created mankind as the finishing touch of his creation, only then does it say, very good. God himself was impressed with the whole of his creation. But especially the crowning work of making people in his very own image. David said it this way in Psalm 139, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. You need to put your name here. I mean, if you're human, if you're not human here this morning, you don't have to claim this. But if you're a human being, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's awesome what God has done in creating you. Human beings are uniquely fashioned in God's image. And they, therefore, have the unique potential to know God, to appreciate God, to be true worshipers, which God is looking for, as we find in John chapter 4. Human beings are created with a God consciousness. We are created with a moral constitution, Involving a conscience. Now, indeed, a conscience can be hardened, it can be weak, etc. And depravity has so messed us up that apart from divine intervention, we never get back on track. Indeed, we don't even so much as seek after God on our own, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Still, even fallen humanity still bears the image of God in a very marred sense. Universally, people have a God consciousness, albeit suppressed. Universally, people have a moral conscience, albeit skewed. Universally, people have a fear of death and judgment. Universally, God has put eternity in the hearts of people where nothing here really totally satisfies. Augustine was right when he made this statement. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. In a very real sense, we were created in God's image so that we might marvel at the glory of God and worship him for who he is in all his glory. Thus, ultimately, God's story is about glory. The story about Jesus is a glory story. And here's the exciting part. By the grace of God, we as believers have a part in this glory story. God had the crowning work of his creation in mind all along. Jesus came from glory, revealed God's glory, went back to glory, and is one day going to come and take all of God's children back to glory. Thus, Christ came to earth on a glory mission that directly had humanity especially in view. Now, in the Bible, we see both general revelation and special revelation. We see the truth of God's glory in general revelation, that is, creation, in a general sense. But then there are occasions where God, through special revelation, reveals His glory in a very direct, special, 
and specific manner. Following Creation Week, the greatest demonstration of special revelation that put God's glory on display in a spectacular fashion was the ten plagues that God brought against Egypt in the context of the Exodus. This unique series of miracles is the major miraculous highlight in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures following Creation Week. And it's referred to hundreds of times in the scriptures. Constantly, God goes back to, the, back to the exodus, back to the plagues, and what God did supernaturally to reveal His glory in that context. So in the Old Testament, the major miraculous event was really those things associated with the exodus. And in the New Testament, up to this point in history, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are kind of like the, the major events, uh, miraculously speaking, that reveal the glory of God. The exodus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and Paul quotes this in Romans 9, 17, but Exodus 9, 16, God says to Pharaoh, but indeed for this purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God says, I'm going to be famous throughout the whole earth because of what I am doing in relationship to you, Pharaoh in destroying all the gods of Egypt, as he did in the ten plagues. Well, it was in the context of the story of the Exodus that God revealed to Moses that his eternal name is I Am. I Am simply means to be. God simply is. I Am signifies that he is the eternal, unchanging God. And it was in the context of the story of Exodus that God clearly revealed his covenant name, Yahweh, to the children of Israel. Thus, the glory of God, through special revelation, was clearly put on display in relation to the Exodus. Now, following the Exodus, God, through special revelation, gave what is called the Law of Moses to Moses. And in that general context, Moses, at one point, asked God to show him his glory. And you know, uh, God would speak to Moses uh, like face to face, very intimately. And Moses wanted more. And so he says, show me your glory. I remember I had a, a friend, I was just fairly new in the ministry. And he was saying, he was in his prayer time, he was just saying, show me, he was saying to God, show me yourself, show me, show me yourself. And I thought, man, if he does, you're going to be a dead man. You see, God told Moses, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. No mortal can see God in his full frontal glory and live. So in Exodus 33, God told Moses that he would allow Moses to see his back, only a partial view of his glory as it passed by. And God here used anthropomorphic terms, meaning they speak of God in terms of human language. It's an accommodation to our, our limited ability to comprehend God, who in reality is spirit. But here's how it went down. As God allowed Moses to see his glory in a partial form. Exodus 34, 6-8, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third or fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Note what God here revealed about his glory. It has much to do with his character. He proclaimed the name Yahweh. This is a revelation of his character. The reality of God can be known from natural revelation, that is, uh, from nature, as seen in Romans chapter 1. However, the character of God is known really only by his, his self-disclosure. What kind of a God is he, morally speaking? This is known through special revelation, which is what we have here. And God begins showing his glory to Moses by pronouncing what the Jews considered to be the most sacred name for God, that name Yahweh. 
It's pronounced twice. The Lord, that is Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, God. Now, whenever God repeats something, it's for emphasis. The name Yahweh by itself means self-existent or eternal. It refers to God's unchanging, faithful character. One of the reasons we have security, because God's not going to change. Uh, He's always faithful to his promises. I can't say, well, God's a fickle God. I hope he just holds. I, I, I hope I get there. No, 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 no. God doesn't change. And in Exodus 3, God attached this name to his covenant relationship to his people Israel, which therefore signifies the eternal God in an everlasting, unchanging relationship with Israel. He is the God who doesn't change, and therefore his covenant commitment doesn't change. Therefore, this name Yahweh is referred to as the covenant name for God. It's considered to be his most sacred name. So when stated the second time here, it's linked with the word El, translated as God, meaning supreme deity. So the sense here is Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed the eternal unchanging God in an everlasting relationship with Israel. The eternal unchanging God in an everlasting relationship with Israel. The supreme deity. Well, having doubly emphasized his most sacred covenant name, God then further disclosed his nature. And he is sharing deeply here about what kind of a God he really is. And I'm interested in this because uh, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one with whom we have to do everything about life and eternity relates to God and the kind of God that he is. And the first thing that he reveals about himself is that he is merciful. Merciful. Isn't that a wonderful reality? I'm a mean God. I'm a mad God. I'm a vicious God. I'm going to just tear you. No, 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 no. Merciful. Merciful. This means compassionate. Compassionate. You know what? He is a God who cares. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He's merciful. What kind of a God is he? I want to see your glory. What, what, what defines you, God? Merciful. Merciful. And then, merciful is linked with gracious. This refers to undeserved favor. And then, long-suffering means slow to anger. God is patient. He gives space for repentance. He does not pounce on people without, without giving great space. Do we not say this, and I hear this often, right? You know we live in a crazy world, right? And it's getting crazier by the day. We don't even know which restroom to go in anymore. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's crazy. And we sit there and say, how long can God possibly put up with this? Well, let's see. Long-suffering. Patient, very patient. I'm glad he's patient with me. And frankly, I'm glad he's patient with the whole world. Yes, judgment will come in God's own due time, but he is a very long... And and this is good for us to reflect on. You know, he's patient with us and he's patient with those other people that we sometimes are not so patient with. Long-suffering. And then abounding in goodness. Abounding in goodness. It's a good God. Uh, goodness is the, really the Hebrew word hesed, uh, that very special word in the Old Testament, often translated as loving kindness, steadfast love, or loyal love. I love that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, as Paul brings out in that great chapter of Romans chapter 8. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor death, nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This is his goodness, his steadfast love, his loyal love. And truth is the idea of faithful, uh, truthfulness, loyal, dependable. But note, note, he's also holy. He cannot overlook sin. Notice, he will by no means clear the guilty. So the question is, how can it be that God by by no means clears the guilty And at the same time, he is merciful and forgiving of all kinds of sin. How can that be? Well, implied between those two emphases is what the whole counsel of God teaches, namely that those who reject God's grace, 
Those who refuse to avail themselves of it through repentance and faith will by no means be cleared. You're going to be right with God. You've got to be right with God on his terms. And what are his terms? Well, just Jesus Christ. That's the only means of being right with God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Coming to have a faith, a saving faith relationship uh, with God through Jesus Christ. And if people reject, uh, their guilt remains. If one rejects God's forgiveness, they will by no means be cleared. And note these attributes define God. They are His glory. His glory. God's glory here has to do everything with the kind of God that He is. Has everything to do with His person, His nature, His character. Now, you say, okay, that's a lot of introduction. It is, but I have 17 pages to deal with. (laughs) Fast forward, fast forward to the birth of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of God in a human body. What an amazing reality. God had previously revealed himself, his glory and creation. In special revelation events, such as the Exodus... But now, but now, God was about to reveal his glory on a greater level than ever before. First point in the sermon. We finally got there. Christ came to reveal the glory of God to us in the context of a human body. Pretty amazing. The almighty, eternal, glorious God of the universe has come to earth as a man. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, Jesus is called the Lord of glory. In John 17.5, Jesus prayed, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is the Lord of glory who came from glory and he brought the glory with him. In the person of Christ, glory came down. But here's the catch. Until his public ministry, the glory of Christ was essentially veiled. You see, to all appearances, Jesus looked like a regular person. In fact, not too impressive at all. No one saw his glory as it was veiled. They didn't say, oh yeah, the neighbor down the street, he looks just like the Son of God, I'm pretty sure. He's God, just look at him. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell by looking. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. He didn't look kingly. That we should look at him. And no beauty. That we should desire him. What? No beauty? Wow. Came wrapped in rather... Regular, ordinary-looking, outward appearance. However, with Christ entering into his public ministry, the glory of who he was began to be revealed in snapshots of special revelation. And John introduces, of course, John is emphasizing the deity of Christ throughout his gospel. But John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. We communicate with words and God ultimately communicated himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We could almost translate this, in the beginning was the communication. Uh, How God has ultimately communicated himself. In the beginning was the word, a title for Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. Rest of the story. And the word became flesh, became a human And dwelt, that is, tabernacled, pitched his tent in a human body, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say, to what end? Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Very consistent all the way through. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, in the most intimate of relationship with the Father, He has declared Him. Literally, He has exegeted Him. He has made Him known. The glory of Christ 
was that he uniquely put God on display in the context of a human body as only he could do. He was fully God bottled up in a human body. And that is Godsome. After Jesus performed his first supernatural miracle in turning the water into wine, the scripture says this. John 2.11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In John 14.9, Jesus told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus was to see God. And to see the truth of this is to see his glory. Colossians 2.9 says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In the body of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God is manifest. Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 spoke of the great mystery in which the person of Christ, quote, God was manifested in the flesh. That's, 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 I was going to say awesome. It's Godsome. In summary form, John tells us a key reason that Christ came was to reveal the truth of God to us. This is why he came. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. Yes, we know that. And has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, the scripture was clear that only God can save. Only God is Savior. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11 I even I am the Lord, that's the name Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. And then in Isaiah 45, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me. I mean, if there's no other Savior, there's no other way to say, you're going to have to look to him. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God alone is Savior. And besides Him, there is no Savior. And yet, yet the penalty for sin is death. Man is guilty, and it must be man that pays for it. So how can God alone be Savior, and yet it be that man pays for the guilt of sin? Answer, God himself became a man in the person of Christ. As God, Jesus can be Savior. And as man, he is humanity's representative who pays for our sin debt. God's answer to this dilemma is the God-man, as found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is his glory. It's a godsome thing. In the words of the Apostle Paul, quote, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is this great and glorious truth that was made known to Joseph prior to the birth of the Christ child. What I shared with uh, the children in children's moment. Shall bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. Jesus means Savior. Yahweh is salvation. He will save his people from their sins. This was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see the dual truths, Savior, God with us. It was this truth that was revealed to Moses, uh, to Mary, rather, by the angel Gabriel prior to the birth of Christ, as seen in Mary's response in Luke 1.47, where she said, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, it was this truth that was announced by the angels to the shepherds on the very birthday of Jesus Christ. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Has to be the Lord because only God the Lord is Savior. Second point. Christ came to make it possible for us to share in His glory. Ah, we're getting to the exciting part. Us, us uh, humans created in the image of God, we're, uh, we're really looking at this. We were created by God in His image that we might share deeply with Him. 
I mean, that's the whole point of making us in his image. Uh, We can appreciate God. Uh, We can have fellowship with God, potentially. Uh, We are on a very deep level in terms of being made in the image of God, that we might experience his glory, that we might adore him, that we might worship him. But sin ruined everything. The fall of mankind brought death and separation from God. Now, instead of a glorious relationship with God, mankind knew separation from God's life and glory. Enter Jesus Christ to remedy the situation. Hebrews chapter 2 explains, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, and that's what we are, we're flesh and blood human beings. Inasmuch as we are, it says, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus had to become one of us so that he might die and destroy the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. On the eve of his crucifixion, Christ, in what is called his high priestly prayer, made this request of the Father. And here's here's one of the specific requests that he made. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It was Christ's death on the cross that made this possible. Jesus was born to die so that we might live with him in glory. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The basis of it all is what Christ has done to make it possible. Redemption means to to pay the price, to, to buy back through His blood. Made the payment so we could be delivered out of the slave market of sin. We might be forgiven. So the basis of us having a position in the kingdom is all because of the blood of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of sins. Indeed, a Savior was born who is Christ the Lord. And He became our Savior by dying for all of our sins. And He becomes our personal Savior when we believe on Him as our personal Lord and Savior. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 10, Paul writes, We trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, Jesus is the Savior of all men, potentially, in that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it becomes effectually, effective and actual only if you believe on him. To make salvation yours, you must personally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As John 1.12 says, As many as received him, To them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. And yes, this does not happen apart from the the grace of God at work in a person's life. And yet there is the command to respond, to receive. Our glory journey begins with saving faith. In saving faith, we come to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, saving faith is a life-changing reality from which we never recover. Praise God. In saving faith, we see Jesus in a way we've never seen him before. We see his glory as God. We see it personally. We appropriate the truth of it personally. No man can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us to this point, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can see Jesus in this way and remain unchanged. When Saul, who became the Apostle Paul saw the living, risen Christ on the road to Damascus, it forever changed him. And he was never the same thereafter. Uh, He recounts his testimony in Acts chapter 22. It happened, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus. About noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? 
Now, the first time he said, who are you, Lord? He, he didn't really know who this powerful being is. So he asked, and Jesus identified himself. I'm Jesus. Now we have real faith. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go into Damascus, and there will be told you the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light, that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. Saul's conversion was a lordship experience. When he saw the glory of the Lord and submitted to it, he was forever a changed man. In saving faith, we have a similar experience, spiritually speaking. Paul, in one of my favorite gospel texts, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but even if our gospel is veiled, unsaved people don't see the truth that I'm presenting to you this morning. It's veiled. They, they have a veil over their eyes. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. The God who did that has now worked a illumination miracle in our hearts. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In believing, we come to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The true gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ and who he is as Lord God as well as his work. You see, it's because of who he is that makes his work all sufficient. Well, this begins our glory journey. <clears throat> but on the journey, we're being transformed little by little into the image of Christ. And how does this happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's all about glory, from one level of glory to another level. And what's this glory all about? It's about being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ as we, as we look on His glory, as we behold Him for who He is, as we marvel at who He is through the Gospels and through the Scriptures. God does a work in us. Those who have come to see the truth of Christ's glory are changed by it and are being changed by it more and more as we behold His glory. This, too, is part of the glory story. But the end of the story is that we as believers are headed for kingdom glory, in which we will share intimately in God's glory forever. My final point, number three, Christ came to bring many sons to glory. Christ came to reveal the glory of God to us in his person. He came to pay our sin debt so we might share in his glory. And even now as believers, we are being changed as we behold his glory. And then finally, Christ is one day going to take us home to glory, into the very intimate presence of God where we will live forever. You know, we sing a song, I have a home prepared where the saints abide, just over in the glory land. That's the homeland. That's home. You know, here we have no continuing city. We don't have a continuing dwelling place. Everything's temporary here. And you can't hold anything. The glory land. Uh, we had some folks in the church years ago. Uh, and they moved to Florida. Wonderful, dear saints. Loved them. And I hadn't talked to them in years. And a few years back, I called. They've been gone for many, many years now. I, I, I called, and she answered the phone down there in Florida. And we talked a little bit, and, and, and we kind of did some catching up. And uh, then as we're getting ready to hang up, she said, uh, We'll see you at the house. What do you mean by that? She said, you know, uh, Father's house. Father's house. In my Father's house are, are many mansions, many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. She said, well, see you at the house. You know, I'm probably never going to see this woman again. And she was saying, I'll see you at the house. I'll see you at Father's house. 
We as God's children are headed for the glory land. We're headed for Father's house. And Jesus made this possible. And what is he ultimately going to do? Well, Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons, where? To glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Bringing many sons to glory. I don't know about you, but that kind of excited me. I'm looking forward to glory. This is what Christ came to accomplish. This is why he was born to die, to the end that we might experience glory. We're on our way to glory. Into the very intimate presence of God. Now, when you see a gorgeous sunset, uh, does it not fill your heart with wonder and awe? It does. I'm always impressed. I always tell God, I'm impressed. Nobody can do this but you. I'm impressed. It's good to tell him. He likes to be worshipped. It's got some. But just think, if the underside of heaven looks like this, looks this gorgeous, what must the upper side look like? We can't even imagine. The only word for it is glory. Glory. I can't can't conceive of it. But one day Jesus is going to come, and when he returns to the earth the second time, the Bible says he will come with power and great glory. In the kingdom, Isaiah prophesies this. And we're all looking forward to the kingdom as believers. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yeah, we saw it in a limited way when Christ came the first time. A few people in the promised land saw it. But now in the kingdom, everybody. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, completely saturated in the kingdom. Well, up to this point in history, we see God's general revelation of His glory in nature. We have certain recorded events where He showed His glory in a spectacular fashion, such as in the Exodus. We have record of the superior revelation of the incarnation in which Christ's glory was put on display in His public ministry. But there's more. There's more to come for the children of God. At the conclusion of the tribulation period, Jesus comes as Lord of lords and King of kings. And then we have this announcement in heaven. Revelation 19.1. This is introductory to the second coming. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. All of heaven is stirred. The climactic praise word, hallelujah, is brought out. Hallelujah. By the way, this word is not used in the New Testament until this moment. But now it's fitting. They cry out the glory belongs to the Lord our God as an introduction to the second coming. And then the text goes on to say, in that same passage... Revelation 19, 6 and 7. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. This is the day that we are waiting for. This is the objective in bringing many sons to glory. Romans 8, 17 says, As children of God, we are joint heirs with Christ, and we will be glorified together. 1 John 3, 2 says, When we see Him, we will be like Him. When we get to the end of the book, it's all glory for the children of God forever. The last two chapters of the Bible at great length describe this beautiful glory place called New Jerusalem, where God's people will live forever. This is your eternal home. Remember, I started this message by saying, quote, Glory is the indescribable, overwhelming splendor and awesomeness of God's person and presence. This is the great emphasis of Revelation 21 and 22 that will be eternally experienced by God's people. Note this. Note the emphasis on God's presence in this, in this new Jerusalem, this eternal city. 
it is described as having the, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it, illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The very presence of God, the very glory of God lights the place. And then Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. Double emphasis. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And then verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That personal relationship with God, his person, and our, our interaction with him in intimacy there. Well, glory is the intimate experience of God's person and his presence. And it's what ultimately heaven is all about. And Christ is the glory connection that makes it all possible. He became God with us so that it might be us with God for all eternity. As God's people, we have a, a glorious future. And it will be Godsome. And it's all made possible because of what Jesus did in coming to earth so that he might be our Savior. There was no Christmas. There'd be no glory. We are headed for the glory land all because Jesus Christ came to this place, which is not the glory land. But God had glory in mind all along. On his deathbed, John Wesley, in his dying words, said, The best of all, God is with us. Indeed, when by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, glory for me. Indeed, that will be the best of all. When a strong believer by the name of Joseph Everett was dying, he said, glory, 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 and continued exclaiming glory for over 25 minutes until he was ushered into glory. No wonder Paul said, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. Glory. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's stand and have our concluding song.